This December marks the 75th anniversary of the United States entry into World War II. To commemorate this, we are speaking with author Larry Loftus, author of a fascinating book called Into the Lion's Mouth, the true story of Dusko Popov, World War II spy, patriot, and the real-life inspiration for James Bond. Larry, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So my first question is, how did you come to write this book and become aware of Dusko Popov and his fascinating history? This seems to be a departure for you as an author and a lawyer. Well, it's, it's a great question, and I actually stumbled into it. And ironically, uh, because I'm a lawyer, had I known that, that Dusko was also a lawyer, I would have chased it. But it was completely by accident. I was working on writing an historical novel, uh, just something that I would make up on espionage, like thrillers that you get at any store. And I figured if I'm going to make it believable, I better do a little historical research and find out things that real spies did so that, you know, someone would not think this, say, this would never happen. So I started researching. And the more I researched World War II spies in particular, the more I looked for greatest spy ever, most daring spy, most accomplished spy and all roads led to Popoff, and the spy kept coming up, and the feats were incredible. In fact, what he did in real life was more remarkable than what I was making up for my own character in the novel. So in short order, I dropped my uh, fictional character and then just focused on Dusko Popoff, and of course, uh, it really happened, so I just made it nonfiction. I have to say, while reading this, it did occur to me that the truth is often stranger than fiction. Could you talk a little bit for our listeners who don't know anything about the man, a little bit about his background and how he even became involved in this web of espionage in World War II? Sure. And I would probably say at the outset, since we're all lawyers, lawyers make the best spies. <laughs> they really do. Popoff was Yugoslavian, and he came from a very wealthy family, was very educated, was very cultured and got a law degree at the University of Belgrade and then wanted to get a doctorate in law and decided to get his doctorate. He could have gone to Oxford or Cambridge. That would have been the natural uh, route to take. But he decided to go to school in Germany because at the time, uh, late 30s, Germany really, and he would say historically, had dominated commerce and economics and had fabulous universities. So he went to the University of Freiburg, which is in, um, I guess, the south of Germany, uh, not too far from Munich, but he went to Freiburg, very well-known school, to get a doctorate. And there, he it was a two-year program. He graduated, but he met another individual who was a German named Johann Jepson, Johnny Jepson, and they became best friends. They were pals. They were a lot alike. This gentleman came from a very wealthy family, a shipping industry that exists today. The Jepson Shipping Empire still exists today. But they both hated the Nazis, and shortly after Popov graduated, he was actually arrested by the Gestapo, interrogated, because he'd made a lot of derogatory remarks about the Third Reich. You know, Larry, something that really struck me about that section of the book where you're describing his experiences in Germany was how flippant he acted towards the Nazis and the Nazi regime at first. He did not seem to understand the kind of peril he was in. Indeed, he actually assumed that because he was a foreign student, that he would be exempt. And they did have different rules for the German students versus the foreign students. The foreign students had their own club, uh, but somehow Johnny, even though he was German, became the president of that club. But Dusko thought that because I'm a foreigner, 
nah, all this stuff with the Nazis doesn't apply to me. I'll be out of here in two years anyway. So he thought he would be exempt. Well, of course, he was wrong. Uh, he's arrested soon after he graduates. They throw him in, in jail and then in prison. And were it not for a somewhat miraculous rescue, and I won't spoil the book in, in detail what happened, but he gets out. He's kicked out of the country by the Germans, uh, goes home to Yugoslavia, practices law. He's just a regular lawyer, having a great practice and a great life. And all of a sudden, one day he gets a telegram from his buddy, the German, Johann Jepsen, who says, I need to meet with you. Well, this is right after war breaks out, and Johnny's a German, so you either join the German army or you're executed. <laughs> That's treason if you don't. So Johnny joins the Abwar, which is the military espionage section, and he says to Popoff, I need your help. And Popoff knows that Johnny hates the Nazis, but he's now on the other side. I mean, Yugoslavia is neutral, but they both hate the Nazis. So Popoff says, okay, well, I'll help you, but just tell me what you need and that'll be it. And Johnny says, well, you need to go to London and go to some parties and one thing leads to another anyway. So Popoff agrees to help his buddy, he joins the Avoir, becomes a German spy, and then immediately goes to the British, of course, and says, hey, I'm a German spy. How about if I be a double agent and work for you guys? It really did seem to happen within days of or, or less, He immediately. Oh, it's very quickly, very quickly, because Johnny had given him a German questionnaire for his first assignment, and Popoff took it directly to the British embassy and, you know, discreetly gives it to the British official. So, and Duke always wondered whether Johnny knew that he was going to do that. That was always in the back of his mind. Because they both hated the Nazis, and Dusko knew that Johnny knew that Dusko hated the Nazis and would never do anything to help them. So he always wondered whether Johnny either knew or suspected that Popoff would soon become a double agent. Now let's talk about this from the perspective of the British, and then soon the Americans. This man shows up. He has what he says is intelligence straight from the Germans. He says, I want to be a double agent. Now, how many people in that time were actually coming in to volunteer to be double agents? It seems like a death sentence. Very good question. Um, basically, one or two, Garbo, and I don't want to get off to a rabbit's trail, but there were a couple that did it. And Popoff didn't just walk up and say, hey, I want to be a double agent. But he said to the gentleman at the embassy, uh, who ends up having a number of names, do is one of them. And it, it sounds like they were, you know, might have been aliases. But he hands him the questionnaire and he says, this is what the Germans gave me. Oh, by the way, what do you want me to do now? Without saying, bring me aboard. I mean, he hasn't been vetted. So he says, what do you want me to do now? And the, the, the British gentleman just says, well, just play along. Play along with the Germans, see what they do, and then, you know, we'll let you know. Well, one thing leads to another. The Germans eventually send him to London, you know, to do his espionage. And, of course, as soon as he's in London, he meets with MI5. Then he has to go through vetting with the military and the uh, MI5 and MI6. And he gets through all of that, and then he becomes an official double agent. So Popoff did manage to convince the British that he had a tremendous value as a spy. And, in fact, they sent him to the United States. And that's where he ran up against the bureaucracy of the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover. Could you please talk a little bit about his experience in America and also the kinds of warnings he was bringing to the United States, which unfortunately were not paid attention to? Sure. And actually, the British didn't send him to New York. The Germans did. 
the Germans were so impressed with his work, which in essence was a team, you know, an MI5 team working on feeding the Germans what they called chicken feed, useless information, military information that was old, that was already public, that was a little bit wrong, minefields in the wrong place and so forth. But it was so good that Germans said, we know, let's send our star spy. And he was their star spy. He was a star spy for both sides. So they said, let's send our star spy to New York and we'll have him set. They really had two assignments. We'll have him set up an espionage system in New York. They actually had one, but the, the key spy that was there was and I don't want to give it away in the book, there was an accident at Times Square and the gentleman was killed mysteriously. And I'll just leave it at that. So anyway, so they're, the, the spy they have there is eliminated. The network is eliminated. They have nothing. So they sent Popoff with two instructions. Number one, set up an espionage network in New York. And secondly, go to Pearl Harbor, go to Hawaii, and investigate the defenses of the Pearl Harbor Naval Base. So all of this happens in, uh, he arrives in uh, New York on August 12th and meets with the FBI on August 18th. And on August 18th, he gives the FBI, in a three-hour meeting at the Commodore Hotel, he gives the assistant director, Earl Connolly, the German questionnaire itself, and then tells them, here's what's going on. They sent me here for these reasons, one of which to investigate the defenses at Pearl Harbor. Here's my questionnaire. Told them everything. And so the very next day, Connolly gives it to Hoover, and Hoover does nothing with it. He tells no one. He keeps it a secret for the rest of his life, actually. And just kept it classified. That's why no one knows about it. I just got a, uh, a number of military people have just read the book. The one of the last CIA directors, I've had two four-star admirals that were both commanders of the Pacific Fleet, just read it. Uh, the director of Los Alamos just read it. None of them knew anything about this because Hoover kept it classified, and it was just recently declassified. So it's a sad story in that sense. It certainly is a what-if, and as you say, it really tormented Popoff, the idea that perhaps if this warning had been given, something would have changed. For the rest I, of his life. Of course. And, and I think it's natural. I don't know that I personally am convinced that it would have changed the course, but it certainly could have. And I see why that tormented him. Larry, let's talk about Popoff's public life. That is, Popoff the Playboy. This was certainly not a secret part of his identity. Sure. One of the reasons that Fleming knew about Popoff was because of his Playboy lifestyle. If you look at the MI5 files, it's all over the files, the women, and he had love letters coming in. They're in the files. He has love letters coming in. He seduces his MI5 sub-agents. There are spies that actually are trying to seduce him, female spies from the German side. So you have all of these women, and word travels fast, particularly in the small intelligence circles. So Fleming certainly knew who he was in the Playboy lifestyle and all that. And I think it's clear that he just used that as the James Bond personality, if you will, and the James Bond character. But one thing that's interesting is Fleming was interviewed shortly before his death in 1964 by the BBC. And the interviewer asked about Bond being this womanizer. And Fleming's response was, look, my guy only has one girlfriend per book, basically, one girl that he chases per novel. Well, Dusko Popov makes Bond look like a Boy Scout because while Bond has one girlfriend per year, 
Popoff had two and three and sometimes four girlfriends in every city where he operated. London, Lisbon, New York, Madrid, Rio. It's just, he just couldn't help himself. But he was incredibly charming, incredibly cultured, had this savoir faire, and women found him irresistible. So, uh, you know, it, it shows up in all the files. Uh, it's there, even the love letters. So there's no doubt why uh, Fleming used that for the Bond personality as well. Yes, well, again, like we said at the beginning, truth can be stranger than fiction. I think that this relates to the second part of your subhead, the real-life inspiration for James Bond. Sure, that whole connection. If you, Let's start with Ian Fleming. If you read Ian Fleming's first James Bond novel, Casino Royale, reading that novel is, if you know anything about what happened in World War II, it's a thinly fictionalized version of what really happened in Lisbon, actually Astoral, which is the suburb of Lisbon. It's kind of like the French Riviera. It's the Portuguese Riviera, if you will. Very nice, world-class hotel in the Palacio. They had the largest gaming casino in Europe at the time, Casino Astoral. Anyway, Fleming works for Naval Intelligence. He is the assistant to the Director of Naval Intelligence, Admiral John Godfrey. Godfrey is going to go to Washington to influence or try to influence FDR to create basically what we would now call the CIA because the British had MI6 and that's foreign intelligence. Popoff actually worked for both MI5, which is domestic counterintelligence, uh, which is sort of like our FBI. Uh, but the Americans had no MI6. There was no CIA at the time. So Godfrey is going to try to convince them to do that, and the man that he wants FDR to choose to run it is General Donovan, Wild Bill Donovan, to run this thing, and Godfrey decides to take Fleming along. Fleming's his right-hand man. He's very good with planning. He's very good with administrative tasks, so he takes Fleming with him. They go over. They encourage FDR to start a CIA, which he does. It's the OSS, which eventually becomes the CIA. Uh, and Fleming actually helped write the charter for the OSS. Most people don't know that. But when they come back from that trip, the layover is in Lisbon. So they're flying from London to Lisbon and then to Washington. When they come back on the layover, Fleming goes into, and by the way, Fleming and Popov stayed at the same hotel, the Palacio, it's all in my book. But they, uh, when Fleming comes back, he decides to have some fun at Casino Astoral. But he follows Popoff. He sees Popoff, and I don't, again, I don't want to say too much about blowing it for people that uh, have not yet read the book, but Fleming sees Popoff and shadows him. And what you read in Casino Royale, Fleming's first novel, actually happened in real life, except that Le Chiffre, the bad guy in the novel, is actually a gentleman by the name of Block. And Mathis is really Fleming, and James Bond is really Popoff. The game was back rats. Uh, he was playing with MI6 money. Even the amount of, if you do the, the numbers on how much money was involved uh, with the different currencies and the change in the inflation rates, even the amount of money that was bet is about the same. So all of that was recreated from what actually happened in Casino Astoral around August uh, 1, 2, 3, right around there, uh, 1941. While I was reading this book, Into the Lion's Mouth, it really struck me that a lawyer was kind of the perfect person to chase down Popov's story. 
But I have to say, how did you do this research and determine what was fact, what was fiction? Sure. You know, the people who were recounting their deeds were sometimes under official secrets acts, forbidden to say anything or, right. you know, just very used to obfuscation. How did you do that? Sure. I, I can thank my alma mater, the University of Florida. The law review was my best training. Law review at the University of Florida was my best training because you learn how to do research. You learn how to, to do citations and to check stuff down. And anybody that's been on law review knows that you have to cite literally almost every sentence, every statement of fact, you have to have a cite for it. So that was my background and my training, which I mean, I couldn't have had a better training to do it. And you're right that there were hurdles. I mean, one of the hurdles is the Official Secrets Act, which was Britain's act that said anybody that worked for MI5, MI6, Naval Intelligence, you could never say a word about what you did in the war or anyone else for the rest of your life. And so Fleming, who died in 64, could never say anything about who James Bond was. And he would make up these stories and say, oh, it was just, it was a lot of people. And he even made up a story about the casino. Oh, yeah, I went there and I played with some Germans. I lost some money. All that was created because he didn't want to violate the Official Secrets Act, which he would be fine. He could have been thrown in prison. So his lips were sealed and everyone's were sealed. Even Popov, who wrote a, his own memoir in 74, even he could not named some names. He changed some things that he knew he, he'd better not say. He changed names. He, he changed dates, places. Uh, and some of it he just got wrong because he's relying on memory. He has no access to MI5 files, no access to the FBI files. And he got some of it wrong. And other parts, he intentionally got it wrong because it would have landed him in prison, dealing with somebody that's um, Johnny's killer. And uh, Popoff had to make up some things about that. Again, I don't want to spoil the story, but when you read the book, there's a surprise when you get to the epilogue because all is not what it seems. So anyway, to answer your question, I, I did have to balance and you know almost cross-examine every source because you have what Popoff said in his memoirs and his interviews. He did a lot of magazine interviews at uh, that side, and then I have in my five side, which is the actual files from the officers in MI5 that they recorded, you know, in 1941 through 1945. Uh, and then you have the FBI files, and that's a whole nother set of files. And sometimes those three sources conflicted. And when they did, I had to make a value judgment, which one's accurate. So it was, it was a hurdle, but it was a fun task. Well, Larry, thank you so much for sharing more about the writing process behind this. For all our listeners, the book is Into the Lion's Mouth, the True Story of Disco Popov, World War II Spy, Patriot, and the Real-Life Inspiration for James Bond by our guest, Larry Loftus. Larry, thank you so much. Thank you, Lee.